Focus on Life. Hello, welcome to Lucas on Life and happy coronation weekend. Yesterday, the world watched as King Charles and Queen Camilla had their big day. And the coronation brought to mind the power of traditions. Although the ceremonies have changed in the 950 years that coronations have been held in Westminster Abbey, some rituals remain. The holiest part of the coronation ceremony, when the monarch is anointed with the chrism oil, is incredibly special, allowing the king to reflect on the responsibilities and duties that he's undertaking. And then there's the stolen stone of scone, also known as the stone of destiny, which is a symbol of the Scottish monarchy. The ancient stone was used for centuries in the inauguration of Scottish kings before it was seized in 1296 by King Edward I. Incorporated into the coronation chair, contention surrounding the stone's ownership led to a lot of debate as to where it should reside. And so on Christmas Day back in 1950, a group of Scottish students stole the stone and it wasn't recovered until three months later when it was found 500 miles away on the altar of a Broth Abbey. In 1996, the stone was officially returned to Scotland with the understanding that it will make short return visits to Westminster Abbey for all future coronations. Traditions. It gets stranger. The rather gloriously named King's Gold Stick-in-Waiting role will be played by Princess Anne. The first time this duty has been undertaken by a woman, hers is a position which is historically given to a trusted person who has the responsibility for the personal safety of the monarch. As part of her role, Princess Anne travelled on horseback behind King Charles and Queen Camilla after they were crowned inside Westminster Abbey, leading a procession of 6,000 armed service personnel. And then, in a role which I think has now been discontinued, there was the tradition, the office of the King's Champion. That tradition began in the reign of William the Conqueror. It was the champion's duty to ride on a white charger, fully clad in armour, into Westminster Hall during the coronation banquet, and his role was to defend the monarch's honour and challenge any person who dared to deny the sovereign's right to the throne to a duel. Oh, yes. Now, all this talk of tradition prompts me to ask the question of myself and of us. How well do we, the church, do with change? The church is called to be a people who embrace change because, quite simply, our God is a traveller. He's going somewhere. The Old Testament people of God were called to Exodus and Red Sea Crossing, going with God where he was going. In the New Testament, Jesus invited his disciples to go on a trek with him, a journey of world-changing purpose, as he invited them, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. So, are we a people who are willing to embrace change or are we shackled by worn-out traditions in our churches? Traditions, that's our theme tonight on Lucas on Life here on Premier Christian Radio. Tradition is a word that's been vilified in recent years. The suggestion from some quarters in the church is that anything that was must be outdated, antique. Only the brand new, the allegedly creative and the apparently innovative 
counts as being significant. The trouble with this is that we end up spitting on history and rejecting out of hand perfectly good practice because it's been around for a while and then we invent new traditions to replace old ones. Tradition can be dangerous. Jesus taught that. Reserving his most withering language for the religious experts of the day, he announced with blistering insight that they nullified the word of God with their empty traditions. It is the mindless, unthinking traditionalism which refuses to allow the new wine of the Spirit to flow. That's the problem, not the use of the well-worn and sometimes even archaic practice itself. We've been thinking about yesterday's coronation traditions. I rather enjoy ceremonial tradition, even if some of it can be a bit mindless. If the lawyers in the House of Lords want to perch themselves on a wool sack because wool used to be England's primary commodity, then that's fine by me. And then I quite enjoy the state opening of Parliament when the monarch is kind enough to deliver a speech that he or she never composed in the first place. The summoning of the members of Parliament is a hilarious little routine. Blackrod, a forbidding-looking chap, knocks on the door of the Commons, and the door is opened and then ceremonially slammed in his face, poor chap. Resolute to the end, he knocks again and summons the members of Parliament to hear the monarch's speech. It's a harmless piece of theatre, rather like the dragging of the speaker to the chair. Apparently, history records that many of the speakers of the House lost their jobs by losing their heads, literally, and so it's supposed to be a job that one accepts with great reluctance. Hence, the members drag the successful candidate to the speaker's chair. At best, it's colourful pomp, and maybe it helps bring large consignments of tourists into the country. At worst, it seems like a bunch of public school types continuing their ragging-in-the-dawn behaviour and hoping that Matron wouldn't catch them. I have discovered myself to be a traditionalist of the more mindless variety. Every morning, I begin my day by inserting my contact lenses into my eyes. I have a careful little ceremony worked out for this intricate and delicate procedure – wash hands, open container, and always put the left lens in first, followed, obviously, by the right lens. One day, I made a horrifying departure from the established norm. I'm ashamed to confess that I placed the right lens into my right eye first and was about to follow this deft move with the placement of the left lens to the left eye when I realised I'd made a terrible, terrible mistake. This was just not the way to do things. Whatever next? Standards were slipping, and so I'm really embarrassed to confess that I removed the right lens and placed it back into its sterile holder. I then placed the left lens onto my eye as the ceremony properly demanded and then inserted the right lens back in again, locating it on my right eye for the second time that morning. Madness. Why do we have traditions anyway? Some of them are simply formed by habit, the well-trodden pathways that result from repetitive walking. Others, like the coronation, serve as a link to history and destiny, reminders echoing from yesteryear about who we are and where we have come from. But sometimes tradition is more sinister because it's simply forged out of preference and control. Our preferences 
and our desire to control things. We like things the way they are in our church, conveniently forgetting that Christ died to redeem his church, and it's his preferences concerning his bride that really matter. And then we hide behind the threadbare scenery of tradition in order to control and manipulate what will happen. It was the late, great David Watson who was told by one lady, we don't want any of that supernatural Christianity in our church, thank you very much. Control was the temptation both of the Pharisees and even the disciples of Jesus. The former were blinded to the wonder of the stinking Lazarus staggering alive out of his tomb because the miracle was too inconvenient, too much out of their control. Jesus was breaking their self-claimed monopoly on all things spiritual, and such an enemy of their control must himself be controlled, or so they thought, even by tying or nailing his hands to the cross. But those would-be friends and followers of Jesus, the disciples, they often wanted to tidy things up around him. Having a crowd of fussing mothers and children clamouring for a hug and a blessing just didn't fit in with the agenda. Wasn't Jesus discussing important stuff like divorce? Wasn't he talking with the religious luminaries of the day? And so the disciples tried to shoo the mother and toddler group away and in so doing ignited a terrifying outbreak of anger from Jesus. They were trying to control him. And sometimes we use the T word, tradition, to do just the same thing. Peter, one of those friends of Jesus, had to learn how not to be a control freak. Don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus. You'll only die there, Peter suggested. Don't think that I'll deny you, Jesus. I'm stronger and bigger than that, he claimed. It was only the three times crowing of the rooster that silenced Peter's control freak tendencies and brought him finally, tearfully, to his knees. So, let's not throw out everything that has some history in the name of innovation, but let's also beware lest we try to handcuff the hands of God with that old, we don't do it that way around here in our church routine. It was a day of traditions, a wedding day. Picture the scene, it had been perfect. A radiantly beautiful bride, warm candlelight dancing in her eyes, a beaming, mildly embarrassed groom, all broad smiles and nervous laughter, the careless, happy chatter of children dashing here and there while the musicians excelled themselves. And then disaster struck, bringing the threat of shame in a culture where hospitality was of the greatest importance. The frantic mutters of servants, urgent behind cupped hands, said it all. The easy flow of wine suddenly abruptly halted, all gone now. The whole day was now threatened by miscalculation or budget or unexpected guests drinking their fill. I'm talking about the wedding at Cana, where Jesus began his ministry and they ran out of wine. There was a hasty discussion, surely, in the corner, an exchange between a woman and her son, and servants are sent off, commanded to fill huge stone jars with water. Moments later, with appropriate pomp and ceremony, the jars are carried in, and eager guests hurry to taste their host's late offering. The wine is just exquisite. 
testimony surely to the host's outrageous generosity, not for him the well-worn practice of waiting until your guests were a bit past caring about the quality of their drinks and then serving the cheapest plonk. The host was both glad and mystified. Gladness crowned his day as his friends and family raised their glasses and toasted his gift of spectacular hospitality. But he's mystified too because he has been carefully watching the level of the pitchers and had been dismayed to see them drop so quickly. Anxiety had gnawed away at the pit of his stomach throughout the afternoon, robbing him of joy. He was peering into the abyss of family disgrace and now he's the talk of the town. But where had the best vintage wine come from? At a corner table, a woman called Mary sits, a bright smile written all over her face. Next to her, her young son sits quietly, his eyes alive with joy. Let's put aside our familiarity with the Cana wedding story for a few seconds. Just imagine that a major Christian ministry is planning a special launch event. Perhaps there would be an array of dark-suited evangelical dignitaries in solemn attendance. Readings would be recited with careful enunciation. Theologically rich prayers of commissioning and blessing would echo around the rafters. A sober air would pervade this auspicious occasion. But Jesus, you chose to begin your ministry at a party a place where wine tumblers were raised and music filled the air, where children chased each other around the room and where the bride danced with her man, shy anticipation in her eyes. And horror of horrors, you didn't just attend, but you provided the wine, and very good stuff it was too. And it gets worse. The wine you gave was at the end of the evening supply, just when disappointment was beginning to take hold because the pitchers were running low, you provided the means for the party to continue late into the night. Whatever next, Jesus. Now, in reflecting on Jesus breaking with what might have been expected of him, let me make it clear that I'm not in any way endorsing the overconsumption of alcohol. Too many lives have been and are being wrecked by that. Perhaps even over the last 24 to 48 hours, the coronation has been used for an excuse to raise one glass too many. My point is this, that in a weekend where tradition has been celebrated, let's not allow traditionalism to strangle our churches because Jesus doesn't belong in a religious box of conformity at all. That's why so many of us love him. Let's honour and respect tradition, but never be stifled or restricted by it. As we've been thinking post-coronation about the power of tradition and the stifling power of traditionalism, let's be open to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. As someone who's been privileged to cross many denominational barriers and see church in wonderful diversity, I am so grateful for many of the different approaches to worship, to service structure that I've enjoyed. Diversity and variety are good, and some traditions need to be maintained. But as we move forward, let's realize and celebrate the truth that we follow a king, the king of kings, who's going somewhere. 
Let's go with him. See you next time. Lucas on Life.